0: everyone, Daniel from Spadework here, and I'm very excited to present to you our first themed toolbox episode called Getting Started. In this toolbox, organizers from different contexts provide different tools that they found helpful so that folks can consider using them when getting their organizing initiative started. Please, bear in mind. This is an experimental format brought together as a third wave begins to engulf us here in Germany, something that made us reluctant to use the recording studio we typically rely on to bring you the quality sound you might expect. Originally, we asked all the organizers to send us a recording, wherein they would present by themselves a tool. However, some asked if their tools could be presented in a more dialogical way. So, in what follows, we have a mix of monologues and dialogues that regard some basic points of getting started. Our first guest is Manuela Tsechna, a researcher, facilitator, and situated organizer currently living in Austria and working across feminism, ecology, and migration-related struggles. She will provide a brief but incredibly important point of consideration on the significance of care in organizing processes. Our second guest is Amra Salomon, an anti-oppression and community organizing consultant, co-founder of ResBeats, and member of the Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice and ORAM Anti-Border Collective. In this segment, I ask her what she's learned about meeting facilitating uh, after accruing two decades of political experience. After Amra, I will provide a small tool that regards the development of a criteria for issue identification, after which my co-host, Antje, will provide some criteria on what makes good demands. From here, I will walk us through a dialogue with Berlin-based Die organizer Robert Maruschka as we go into the practice of door-knocking, something that can be used both in order to find out what issues people are dealing with as well as a key mechanism in getting out the vote. And lastly, we'll end with a reflection by Ottawa educator and organizer Chris Dixon, who, drawing on the works of Ella Baker and Harshawala, presents the three C's of leadership. Together and individually, we hope the tools that we've dropped in the toolbox help organizers organize even better.
1: Starting with the basics, this is very obvious, but it's still good to say it. It matters a lot within our organizing processes that we remember that we are people who have bodies. Um, And so that means we have needs and um, everybody has needs. We live in a society where the notion is that some people have special needs, uh, so that some needs are special but actually other needs are normal, but in any case needs are kind of a bit embarrassing, generally speaking, and we shouldn't really think or talk about them too much. Now that leads us uh, into a lot of fucked up situations that make our organizing very unsustainable and exclude a lot of people as well. So crucial things to do with needs are ask those people ask well make sure to identify within your group what different kinds of needs there are needs of specific people in the group but also different caregiving responsibilities that they might have towards the needs of others you know if they have kids or they're looking after um, an elderly parent or an ill friend or whatever it is and to make sure to ask people to propose themselves how their needs can be best addressed by the group. So don't just presume that you know how to address other people's needs without asking them. And that relates to so anything from setting the time for meetings to um, thinking about what kind of food to bring to obviously bringing food, which some people also don't even consider as part of an organizing process, but actually eating and um. Also celebrating and feasting are crucial parts to our organizing, if we want to make it more sustainable and joyful. To other things like how we can incorporate children or other people into our meetings and organizing spaces, um, to thinking about um, how we facilitate meetings, who takes the notes, uh, make sure that all these kind of tasks are rotated, and that all the tasks that um, come more under the umbrella of reproductive work or care work get shared evenly and especially by people of all genders. Um, so that's the basics, very important. Embrace the body, different people's bodies, different kinds of bodies. And don't be afraid to ask what people need and feel. And develop a culture of asking how people are at the beginning and the end of meetings. And um, and try and factor that into the kind of rhythms Uh, of organizing that we set up for ourselves because we don't want to burn out and we don't want to burn other people out either.
2: My name is Amra Salomon and I'm coming to you from San Diego, California, in the United States. And um, I'm... Let's see. I've been organizing um, for about 20 years now. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting to say that out loud. (laughs) Uh, I've worked with a lot of different organizations and in a lot of different spaces and movements. Um, Some originally from uh, the area near San Francisco and I worked a lot with um, student organizing in the Bay Area there, um, union and housing rights, as well as environmental justice and immigrant migrant rights. When I came down to San Diego uh, about 10 years ago, I started working more with uh, my indigenous communities that are you know, closer to the border here um, and continuing to do some work with uh, some of those other spaces and movements that I had previously been a part of, as well as becoming more of a uh, transformative justice and anti-oppression organizer and trainer. So a lot of what I do with uh, community groups at this point is um, you know, facilitate spaces where people are trying to create accountability or trying to unlearn some problematic dynamics that have arose in the space and just providing tools to folks on how to do that work and learning collaboratively with them as we go. Because I don't I don't think any of us are an expert at that yet. It's something that we're always uh, learning together and in construction
0: on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really great to have you on, Amra. So both of us have been in a lot of meetings, uh, in-person meetings and probably now digital meetings. And mm-hmm. uh, like you just said, um, facilitating a good meeting isn't easy. <laughs> uh, yeah it takes a lot of preparation and some mm-hmm. practice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you do to prep for facilitation?
2: For myself personally, um, I think at this point, I, I like to have as much preparation as possible. Um, and there's, mm-hmm. I think what happens and what I've seen over time in meetings, especially people coming from, you know, a, kind of Western, like, you know, bureaucratic understanding of meetings and and thinking of coming together to do something as a form of labor and a form of work, Um, have this idea that, that time and efficiency are the values that should be the most important in the meeting. And when you're coming together to actually organize, especially on politics and on injustice, time and efficiency is not the most important thing, it's actually the relationships that you construct with each other. And so mm-hmm. you have this conflict often um, between people who are there, who um, have been historically or, or you know, are dealing with forms of marginalization and silencing, really wanting to have a space where they can think um, and speak and share their voice and their contribution. And then you've also got folks who just want to get through the agenda and just, you know, are goal orientated in that sense. And, you know, it's important sometimes, you know, you do need to get things done. You know, if a space doesn't ever get things done and decisions aren't ever made, then people do feel like, okay, why am I here? You know, we're not doing anything, you know, some, some folks really need that, you know, tangible material um, process of, coming to a decision together and taking action. Um, But other people are there because they wanna be heard. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so you have to balance those two things at the same time that you have to, I think as a facilitator, prepare yourself for holding that space of contradiction and trying Mm -hmm. to find balance in it. And there's a lot of somatic things that I do at this point in my practice. and that I like to try to get people to do <laughs> together with me. Um, mm-hmm. So at like where I am now in my practice, I, I recognize that being, you know, in a place where we're all going to put our heads together um, needs to also engage the rest of our body. You
3: mm-hmm. know, we
2: need to have space to, um, to acknowledge that some of us, have a hard time, you know, because of, of, you know, the rest of the world and how ableistic it is sitting Mm -hmm. there for long periods of time together. Mm -hmm. So I like to incorporate breaks, I like to incorporate movement, I like to make sure if we're in person, that, you know, and even if we're not in person, if we're, you know, dealing in remote spaces, that, you know, we have Water and food, <laughs> and can take care yeah. of our uh-huh. bodies in that sense. Otherwise, people can't uh-huh. be present. Uh-huh. And just acknowledging, you know, and saying that out loud to people is what I do as a facilitator a lot now. I'm like, okay, we're going to be, you know, together for this amount of time, probably, you know, reminders, you know, s- do you need to stretch right now? Do you need to, you know, get out of that uncomfortable chair for a while? You know, do you need to go to the bathroom, <laughs> do you need to eat mm-hmm. something,
3: <laughs> um,
2: and, you know, giving people <laughs> tools, you know, because sometimes we get into, you know, we love conversations, you know, and, and connecting with our compas is something really deep and profound, and so when we get to that space where we get to talk about, you know, our ideas and our politics and our needs, um, we can get so wrapped up in the conversation we forget, you know, about our bodies, so I think it's really important to just start there you know that we all have bodies (laughs) bodies, (laughs) you know and we all show up to the space differently in our bodies and our bodies are different and our bodies have different needs so um I like to to do that work and prepare people that I'm that type of facilitator yeah I'll send out things beforehand like um, a lot of self-care tools I incorporate now in preparation. You know, here's, you know, some things you can listen to if you're feeling stressed. Here's, you know, an image you can use to ground yourself. Here's a, you know, a workout that's free online that you could do before the meeting. Or, you know, here's a list of questions to ask yourself to make sure your body's prepared. And I think particularly, like, working with, you know, more of my my Indigenous communities at this point, and also, you know, Latinx communities, it's important to bring our cultural and spiritual practices into the space and acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'll, you know, provide people some reminders, you know, that some of us might be burning medicine, some of us might be coming to this space as if it's a form of ceremony. Mm
1: -hmm. And these
2: are the ways that we do that. And if you're not used to that, here's what it looks like. (laughs) You know, so Mm -hmm. you're not Mm you know, you know, so we're creating an inclusive space for all of our ways of knowing and ways of being. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important when we're working with diverse groups as well, you know because Mm -hmm. if we're thinking about organizing and movement building and we've only had an experience of meetings in, um, you know, academic spaces or in work spaces, um, you know, work and academia don't allow us to come into the room with our full bodies and with our culture and with our spirituality Mm -hmm. and with our background and with our kids, you know, or with our elders Mm -hmm. or who, you know, our partners or whoever else might be with us, um, you know, our care attendant. And and so making sure that we're creating a space that's inclusive requires us to do all those things to think about, you know, what else do we have to have here or allow to be in the space and to acknowledge that that means that we're not gonna move at the time of capitalist productivity. You know, we're not going mm-hmm. to move at the time of efficiency that, um, you know, you might be used to at work because work doesn't allow you to have all those other things. <laughs> work is just there to extract, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, unlearning that extractive process of coming to a decision or having a conversation is a lot of the work, I think, mm-hmm. um, in movement building, facilitation. And, and, you know, you always, like I said, you always have to balance it. Because we, you know, we can't just sit there and talk without any action either. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you're, you know, as a facilitator, you're, you're, you're accompanying that process. I think of it as, you know, kind of being a, a conductor in an orchestra. You want each instrument to be heard. You know, you want to bring out the full potential of its voice. Um, you want to make sure nothing's silencing another voice. But you also want to make sure that, that we come to harmony, you know, and that we totally. produce some music together
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> so that's a balance you
0: know yeah 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 uh that's really great um you like wiped out the next two questions because it was like exactly about um like I remember the first time that I went to a meeting how alienating that was because mm-hmm. it was just uh, like the the first political meeting I went to was just really stressful because I mean it's like a different it can be a different life world right yeah. where there are a bunch of um like you know unwritten codes and things to say and things not to say and so it was just very mm-hmm. very alienating but i think that you 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 already covered some good uh, some good ground on how to to not do that right and yeah. how to deformalize that process so it's like a place where real people can meet
4: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, get stuff done in mediation with feeling heard mm-hmm. and it being in an actually accessible space right like have- Having to mediate between those two kind of poles of like, on the one hand, you got to do something, like you have to do stuff, but on the other hand, you can't do stuff if you alienate a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And
2: it's, um, you know, uncomfortable to be there, right? And absolutely. A lot of us, you know, like, especially those of us who come from, you know, into like labor organizing, for example, uh, have seen, um, the adoption of facilitation rules and protocols that come from corporate America or come from the military. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. like, at least in the US, that's that happens a lot. I'm not sure about the European context, but you know, Robert's Rules of Order was oh, created gosh. by by this ex-military officer, right? Who wanted to constrain civil society and, and make it more um, regimented in terms of, of reflecting the military and reflecting the state government. And, and, you know, his goal, if you read into the history of that, was to limit voices of dissent. And so if we're a bunch of dissenters and we're trying to get together, why are we using a tool <laughs> <laughs> that's meant to oppress us? <laughs> Makes no sense to me, right? You know, yeah, or if, yeah, yeah. if we're workers and, and, you know, we're being our labor is being extracted and we're being oppressed by capital, why are we using the tools of the corporate boardroom? to come together for our decision-making processes. That, that doesn't make any sense. It's it's just illogical. And so I really encourage groups to throw away all of that corporate <laughs> and military and statist form of decision making and form of conversation because it's not, you know, it doesn't, it's not consensus-based, it's um, silencing, it's oppressive, it's reflective of um, the state and capital and militarization and and is contrary to our values. And it's, you know, was created to limit and curtail and silence our communities. So it feels really alienating. And and a lot of times groups are not aware, uh, groups that use those forms of protocol always Mm -hmm. ask this question of like, how come no one stays in our organization? Or how come like we have a hard time attracting new people? Or how come, you know, Everybody in the room is of the same cultural, or economic or social or educational background. And I'm like, well, because the methods you're using are exclusionary, you know, they don't yeah. welcome other people participating. And so you have to reflect on those methods. And there's a lot of different tools out there. You know, there's a lot of different potential facilitation models, decision making models out there. And you have to kind of explore all of that and figure out what works for your group. Um, totally. And and it can't be a top-down process, you know, especially if you're trying to build out a movement or build out a space or bring more people in or make sure it's diverse and inclusive. Mm-hmm. You, you have to come up with something that's that doesn't feel like going to work. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> Because no, no one wants to go to work. Fuck work. So, like, <laughs> why would I come to an organizing space that feels like my shitty job? Like, no. <laughs> and, and same thing with, like, you know, government. Like, like the, the process of going, you know, to a government meeting, even if it's a local government meeting, and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to push your government to do something feels shitty. <laughs> you know? And so why would we take you know, the way that the city council, you know, has their meeting facilitated and make that ours, you know, if we know that inherently most people walk into that space and feel awful and feel (laughs) silent. So let's let's not do that. (laughs)
0: 100%. Um, Yeah. I also was wondering, um, on the one hand, uh, what are some practices that people can use to encourage participation, particularly from those who tend to not speak at meetings or, yeah, and without alienating them? And mm-hmm. on the other hand, facilitation can sometimes mean dealing with big personalities. And what are some practices <laughs> that, uh, that folk can, folks can use to, uh, to try and take some of that space back, let's say? <laughs>
2: Well, okay, so the first off, I think um, you should have some discussion agreements and like respect agreements. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a lot of resources online you can find if you just put in like, you know, facilitation agreements or discussion agreements and see what comes up. Mm -hmm. But your group should talk about that together. You know, that should be something everybody creates together based on their negative and positive experiences of other meetings and other spaces. Um, because that's going to be different for each group. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like, um, you know, I was in one meeting one time about uh, some, some housing issues and there were people from different, you know, parts of the community. And, and, you know, we had a lot of diversity, a lot of different languages in the room, a lot of different cultures. And there were, the group facilitating had tried to, you know, put in this uh, ground rule of no one talking over each other. And, and people were like, well, then how can we do simultaneous translation if we can't talk over each other? <laughs> and, you know, and then some people were like, in our culture, like, we affirm what the speaker saying by speaking back, by by vocalizing our affirmation, um, that we're hearing them. And that's what active listening looks like to us. And so if we can't do that, then this feels like it's, it's not welcoming to our culture. And, and so, you know, we had to take that rule out because it just didn't you know, the intention was, you know, not to dominate another person, but there was a different way we could say that. <laughs> that still <laughs> allowed, you know, don't dominate another person which is different. But, and, um, you know, you can't speak when someone else is speaking if if your intention is to affirm the speaker or engage that you're listening or, you know, do translation. So, so you have to kind of talk through like, you know, what that means and creating those ground rules is, is the first mm-hmm. step. Um, And then you have to follow them. (laughs) A lot of groups like have these beautiful ground rules and then they just kind of do it once and never come back to them, never revisit them. They don't actually put them into practice. And so you have to, you know, I like to have them visually on a poster up on the wall, (laughs) (laughs) you know, while we're talking. And as a facilitator, I will refer back to them constantly throughout the conversation, acknowledging when people are doing well with them. You know, like, oh, I love how you just did, you know, you, you just passed the mic to that other person. And that was, you know, part of our ground. We'll pass the mic to, you know, if you see someone who wants to follow up, you know, or I love how you just, um, you know, asked a question about that that was critical, but you didn't attack that person. You questioned the idea, <laughs> you know, and I'll just like affirm when people are doing it, um, which makes them feel good. And then you don't have to, you know, let them know when they're not doing it that much. Because if you create an affirmative space, like, "yay," you know, I'm going to acknowledge that you're doing it. Then I don't have to be like, hey, <laughs> remember this is horrible. <laughs> Stop doing that. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> it just creates an affirmative space of practice. Um, so that's a whole set in of itself. I think to get people to participate, um, you have to acknowledge that sometimes um, all of us communicate in different ways. And we all think in different temporalities. So some people um, think while they're talking, like I tend to be that kind of person, like I have to t- talk things out to even process it in my own mind. So I'm a talker, but other mm-hmm. people need to be quiet in order to think and process and take in what's going on. And then they're they more careful with their words. And so you have to acknowledge that that's, that's how we are. <laughs> there could be a diversity mm-hmm. of expressions there. Um, and so you have to work with silence and pausing, and mm-hmm. if you notice, like, okay, these five people over here keep talking and these other five people are, are quieter, kind of create a pause as a facilitator and be like, okay, hold on, I just want, want to give us all a minute just to think. Mm-hmm. And if you're uncomfortable sitting in silence for a minute, maybe you could take out a piece of paper and, and, or your phone and, and write out your ideas. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it, and then that gives everybody, you know, processing time, because a lot of times those quieter people just need to process, but um, totally. not disengaged. And there's other activities you could do. You could do breakout groups. Um, you can give people pieces of paper and they could write their ideas out and, and put them up on a wall or on a table and, you know, you can mix them up and then they can be anonymous because a lot of times people are afraid to bring something up because they don't want to be criticized for it, especially if it's just a new idea or a question mm-hmm. that they're thinking through.
3: Mm-hmm. And they don't
2: want um, they're unsure of how the group is going to receive that. And so yeah. you have to give them moments to provide anonymous feedback. Um, and you can do that through through post-it notes. You can do that through um, all kinds of different ways, uh, you know so that you give folks um, who are quiet or a time to contribute their voice. And then as a facilitator, you can read them all and not assign like a name or a person to them. And then everyone can discuss the question or, or the thought. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a whole set of practices to that, to bringing out people's voices without calling on them and shaming them. <laughs> you know? yeah. Which is what I think a lot of people have experienced if you're a quieter person, is you're trying to not make eye contact with the facilitator because you don't want to be called on and shamed.
0: <laughs> you know? It's like school don't look at me <laughs> like,
2: again and, and it's about not reproducing the oppressive institutions you know so if yeah. school is miserably oppressive for most people do why are we going to act like a teacher <laughs> you know?
3: Yeah.
2: like in that sense you know and so um yeah you don't want to shame people you know because you don't know what they're thinking and you know what their needs are so so there's you know there's ways to bring them in Mm-hmm. And part of that is, um, you know, creating smaller groups, the anonymous feedback, creating pauses for people to think, um, and also reminding folks to listen who tend to talk through their thoughts. <laughs> 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 you know, so someone like me, who's a talker, like, I appreciate it when a facilitator is like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe step back for a minute and, and let us hear from from other voices and remind me, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm taking up too much space, or maybe... I'm on my, you know, being self involved thinking through my own thoughts right now and I haven't listened to what other people are thinking. You know, so uh, you so you do have to gently remind folks, you know. And and you have to be prepared to be more forceful if you have a big personality that doesn't want to listen to anybody else. <laughs> you know, uh, like, like you know, and if you've got good collective ground rules, you can remind that person that the values of the room is, is, you know, that they shouldn't be dominating the conversation. Totally. But also, I think breaking up items, like say we have three topics to get through in a meeting, um, you could, the facilitator doesn't have to present all of those topics, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: other people could present them, other people could raise questions about them, and you can rotate all of that. And that way, you know, people aren't just hearing from one facilitator all the time, too. Um, And it gives everybody else experience, you know, facilitating parts of the meeting um, or parts of the conversation. And you could, you know, break it up by, okay, you know, Juanita is going to present this idea and then um, Araceli is going to, ask the questions, you know, and then break it up that way, you know, and have a couple different people kind of engaging it, or or we're going to do like a group activity or a creative activity to think through this idea. Um, And there's a lot of like those types of activities you can find on the internet too. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to kind of make meetings more interesting, I think, and develop knowledge in different ways.
0: Totally, totally. Yeah, I think that's one of the big takeaways, right? That um, like a lot of people have, not a lot of people, but one of the one of the voices in the stream is like this, um, oh, I don't want, like, you know, this is just some like shitty PC culture that's being like um, put onto me. Um, mm. But the, that's not the point at all. The point is that if you want to actually have people stay together and those people come from difference, like different parts of the world with different cultures, um, with different ideas of what organization looks like, then this like universal model just doesn't exist.
3: Mm -mm. Like
0: this capitalist organization, and that's a shitty universal model of organization. And it works because it's authoritarian. Like if you don't do what the boss wants, Mm -hmm. then you're fired. And so what our organization is going to have to look like is going to actually have to reflect the, the difference of our composition you know
2: yeah and each and space is gonna be different you know so like 100 percent, yeah like I myself I'm me right but I mean I'm part of a couple different spaces and each of them operates differently and I show up to each space completely differently based on who's in that space and what are we trying to do together um, and so you have to have that flexibility and I think that's hard you know it, it's learned <laughs> it's not something yeah, yeah, we all yeah. naturally come with you know, especially, you know, those of us who are introverted, or, you know, have, you know, more challenges kind of connecting to new people in general, that can be really scary, you know, that can be really challenging in of itself, like, um, and I don't want to like, minimize that, that like, Meeting new people and trying to build relationships with them isn't hard as fuck, because it is. It's (laughs) It's really fucking hard. (laughs) And you know, and also knowing that, like, you know, I think a thing that I reflect on a lot, and I like like to bring up with groups, is the systems that we live under. Are colonial, capitalist, white supremacists, heteropatriarchal, ableist—they're completely fucked up. That's why we're we're getting together to change them, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't anticipate that any of us have come out of that experience without scars, you know, without some type of baggage, because we've all come up. There's no one innocent here. We've all come up through these fucked up systems and have internalized (laughs) some piece of it, you know, and even if our intention is to abolish all that shit <laughs> you know um you know we have to you know recognize that, that we're all going to fuck up at some point we're all going to have like a mistake an error a moment where we're um internalizing you know these these problematic logics and we have to have accountability processes for that and and Um, you know, community building processes for that and also like unlearning processes for that so that, um, you know, we we have to anticipate that all of us could potentially hurt each other in this space. And so what are we going to do about that? You know, if that happens, how are we going to deal with it? And have that decided beforehand. (laughs) (laughs) So that we're not like sitting there in a moment where something (laughs) fucked up happens and no one has any tools. You know, yeah. and it just becomes paralyzing, and then everyone leaves. You know, that's, you don't want that to happen. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's another facilitation process is you know having those tools of and developing them of like how do how do we like to deal with conflict? How do we like to deal with um, discomfort? How do we like to deal with you know potentially hurting each other or offending yeah. each other in the space, knowing that it's probably going to happen. <laughs> It's probably going yeah. to be all of us, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, what, what is our approach to that? Yeah. And I think if you make a space that's um, about, be, you know, being able to learn through those moments, being able to create deeper, more healthier relationships through that moment, and, and also, you know, to have some responsibility about that moment um, and not let it slide, you know, but to address it and learn and transform from it, Then people will be really drawn to that space because we don't get to do that in any other relationship, you know.
0: That's one hundred percent.
3: And and
2: people will like that space because they're learning social skills from it too, and and you know actualizing themselves as a person in relationship with others, and that will feel good. Just you know, regardless of the type of work that you're doing.
0: Daniel here again. So, the tool I'm adding to this toolbox regards issue identification. No matter your organizational context or the political environment you're in, you and your organization have to pick an issue to fight over, whether it's in your community, in your workplace, even in your union or party. Our ability to address issues and define the ways in which they are resolved are where we earn our salt as organizers. They're the reason people come together in the first place. There's an issue that they're having that they themselves as individuals cannot resolve. So, issues are essentially problems that people are experiencing, and your struggle over them is to develop a new organizational outcome that not only makes them go away, but hopefully gives you and your coworkers and community members power over the organizational processes that develop them in the first place. The issues you fight over determine the possibility of support not only in your workplace, but in your community and vice versa. But picking good issues is hard. I know a lot of my political experience growing up was defined by lacking not only any kind of issue identification criteria, but any way of finding out what mattered to my community members, coworkers, or even comrades. Without criteria, you run the risk of either losing focus or you run the risk of losing or not even establishing connections with the bases that you want to organize. For example, from 2013 to 2015, I was involved in a union struggle at the University of California. And while we were able to win an impressive contract in that time and even win our union elections, Our organizing core really struggled to focus our limited power on specific issues after we won power and the bargaining session ended. We jumped from issue to issue without any focus and quickly burned out. If we would have established criteria between ourselves early on, we could have decided a course of action according to something agreed upon. Likewise, recently in a workshop I gave to some workers that were looking to organize their fellow workers, I asked them to reflect on the issues they had selected in the past and why they picked those. What became very clear, very quickly, for everyone involved, was that they were picking issues that were important to them, but they lacked any structures or practices to find out if those issues even mattered to their co-workers. So I want to present to you here an example of issue identification criteria. Now, Rinku Zen is awesome, and she offers some great insight on issue identification in her book, Stir It Up, Lessons in Community Organizing and Advocacy. Uh, in this book, she provides the Midwest Academy criteria as a standard template, and I think it's a good place to start. Um when considering issues, Midwest Academy considers the following points. And for those that don't know, Midwest Academy is a movement organizing school. You should look it up. So, um, these are the points that they provide. A good issue, number one, has to make a real and feelable difference, allowing a change in the relations of power. Number two. The issue should be widely and deeply felt, non-devices, and consistent with your organization's values and visions. People have to find it important enough to take risks. Number three. The issue should suggest clear demands. Number four. The issue should be winnable. Five. Easy to understand. Six. Six has a clear target, a clear decision maker, seven, the issue has a clear time frame, eight, the issue gives you opportunities to build leadership, and nine, the issue sets up your organization to tackle additional and related issues. Like Rinku, I'm going to argue that groups don't have to pick this criteria for issue identification. But you have to have some criteria. And that's because you don't have infinite resources. This is the difference between people power and money power. People power depends mostly on the available labor power that we can bring into action and coordination. And most of that labor power is already taken up, on the one hand, by capital, when you go to work to get the money you need to live your life. And on the other hand... Um, by your own social reproduction, the activities it takes to get you back up and at it the next day. I'm not saying you have to use this criteria at all. I don't. I don't. But you have to pick a criteria that helps you focus limited resources towards activities that build the power of your coworkers and communities. And that means being selective about what to fight for and when. That doesn't mean at all that one has to be rigid. There are times when flexibility is called for. But that's a different organizational problem. The point, however, is to fight for things that are important to your base, that empower your base, and just as critically connect your base, which means eventually thinking how the interests of your base cannot or connect with the interests of others in order to forge Combined political initiatives. And that's all I got.
5: Hello, Antje here. And for our toolbox, I will talk briefly about developing a good demand. Danielle has already said some important things about issues and how to identify them. I will now look at the way from the issue to the demand. How do you turn your issues into demands? Here are some criteria we've drafted that we mashed together from Rinku Sen, Beautiful Trouble, the Midwest Academy and Organizing for the Common Good. Firstly, the demand has to be ambitious and specific. It has to result in a clear policy Or organizational proposal that people will feel inspired to fight for because they know that the improvement will be tangible. A cost of living adjustment. Increased funding for youth initiatives. Increased funding for rank and file training or the expropriation of large landlords. It is important to develop these demands consciously as part of a larger strategy. Sometimes it might be useful to first develop a procedural demand. Such demands might mean releasing information, commissioning an investigation controlled by your organization, getting a meeting with a decision maker, and so forth. Using actions to get procedural demands as part of a strategy to move you closer to realizing your substantive demands might make sense in some scenarios. In others, it might be too risky or too slow or simply not helpful. Secondly, the demand you develop has to have a decision-maker that is capable of enforcing it. These are primary targets that you're trying to move from opposition to support or concession. It might be a boss. It might be an individual member of a governmental council. It might mean a party functionary who's blocking resources – the point is that they can concede to the demand. In short, don't demand federal legislation from your local mayor. The more you know about your primary targets, the histories, their power bases, the better. The more you know, the more pressure points you can squeeze and the more you have an idea of how they will try to wriggle their way out. In relation to primary targets, their are secondary targets. These people can influence your primary target or put pressure or on their behavior and move your primary target into action. It might be their power base or their allies. In order for your campaign to succeed, you need to apply pressure. I mean, I assume that asking nicely didn't get you what you needed. So now it's about changing the relations of power And knowing these relations is key. Thirdly, good demands are those that are achievable and realistic. Achievable means that there is either some kind of precedent or that there is a theoretical basis for the demand to be winnable. For example, yes, the expropriation campaign is achievable because there is a legal basis in the constitution for expropriation under such and such conditions, and those conditions are clearly met. Realistic regards the actually existing resources, the relation of political forces and strategy. Points to consider are the available alliances that either exist or can be forged over the process, the existing mobilization structures, the amount of people ready and trained to move and build others, the current political climate and political forces in office as well as their relations. Fourthly, good demands should build alliances and connections. If you can identify issues that extend beyond your specific base and speak to broader concerns and interests, all the better. Working-class politics is all about connection. If you're doing workplace organizing... How can your bargaining be used for the benefit of the working class as a whole? How can you fight for issues that are relevant to your community and that might eat away on racial and gender divisions of power? If you're doing community organizing, how can you bring the power of unions into the fight? What other organizations and social groups have an interest in seeing that victory because it's a victory for them as well? Lastly, good demands should provide an opportunity for popular education. The ongoing campaign here in Berlin around housing has gone to great length to provide deep, systemic lessons, not just about private property, but about financialization and speculation, uprooting false notions that the housing crisis was caused by students and hipsters, showing instead the way real estate capital, finance capital, and tech capital have interacted to produce a booming crisis of social reproduction. Likewise, in a recent article by Valerie Alsaga and Harmony Goldberg in The Forge magazine, they highlight how the United Teachers of Los Angeles developed initiatives like strike schools to forge deeper solidarities between parents, teachers, and students. At this strike school, parents learned that neoliberalization of public education meant the cutting of public school funding, which was later used as grounds for privatization. So, to summarize, good demands are ambitious and feasible. They address a clear target, they are realistic, they build networks and connections and then provide an opportunity for popular training. And that, dear comrades... Makes good demand
0: So let's start off, Robert. Um, who are you? Uh, what political experiences are you bringing to our listeners?
4: Good morning, Danielle, And good morning, Antje. Um, I'm very happy to be on your podcast. I like it very much. So thank you for inviting me. Um, Yeah, what experience do I bring to the table? Um, I've been active in social movements uh, around the city and around that the rent is too damn high. And I've been active in social movements that deal with the welfare state or how we like to call it the workfare state. And since three years, I've, I've been working for Die Linke in the headquarter of Die Linke, and I've been dealing with door knocking, canvassing, and organizing. So that's my experience.
0: Awesome. And you've been mainly based here in Berlin, Germany, right? Yes. I've Perfect.
4: kind of never left Berlin except for small periods of time.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Um, so Robert, can you tell our listeners, what is door knocking? What what can it be used for? In which instances does this tool make sense?
4: Well, when we talk about door knocking, we talk about knocking on doors, as you can imagine. And this is uh, very important because as social movements or as socialist parties, we um, kind of always talk about the people. And if we want to believe or if we believe or if we are convinced that we can change the world with those people and with our neighbors it's very important to know what the neighbors are up to and what their problems are so we are knocking on doors to get to know our folks and to find a connection and to see how we might be able to fight together for the things that we need to fight for because Society and politics is basically has basically become a shit show, so we need to fight and we can fight by ourselves. so we want to talk to our neighbors and see what's up. And the second thing about door knocking is that we do it systematically. We don't just do it with 10 folks in my block or in my apartment house in my apartment building. We um, yeah do it all over the place, but not randomly.
0: So what I'm hearing is that this could basically be used as an issue identification tool, right? Like if you want to find out what are the issues in your community, uh, door knocking would be a good way to go about it, right? But not in some half-assed, I'm just going to randomly (laughs) knock doors, but with a plan, right?
4: Yeah, that's what organizing is all about. If you don't have a plan, you're not organizing. So we're doing it with a plan. And it's not, of course, we want to find out the issues, but we also want to build our base. So it's basically a tool and organizing basically is a tool to or a political culture to establish relationships between people, to build communities that then are able to fight. And yeah, so we're making a plan to find our neighbors, to build relationships, to find issues, and then... To follow through with that plan and to maybe change that plan with our neighbors because they have better ideas. Beautiful, beautiful.
0: So um, this means planning. This means coordination. This means building power. How do you, how do you prepare for a door knocking round? Since we know it has to be systematic, what's a what's a good way for for people to prepare for a door knocking round?
4: Well, it probably depends on what you're trying to do. If you're a local initiative, that Tries to build up power uh, among tenants because the rent is being increased in that one block. You want to knock on every door on that block and build that power, build that base, and get people to um, do something. So that's different from trying to win an election. If you're trying to win an election, you have to put in a little more work about where to go because you don't want to. I learned that in. 2010 in <laughs> Oakland, you don't want to, you don't want to organize the enemy class. That's dangerous. You don't want to turn out the enemy class. You don't want to turn out the folks that in the end vote green. You want to turn out your folks and you want to build power among your folks. So um, you're trying to map out where does it make sense to go? We are always going in districts where we have uh, good, where we've had good results and where the turnout has been quite low. So, yeah, and then we go, and we're trying to to get those people to fight with us or to fight together, not with us, not just join us, but we want to build something together that is then you. And we, but we also want them to turn out to vote because winning electoral power is very important, as we can see now, because, yeah, the current government is not getting their shit together. Mm-hmm.
0: So just to draw an example of what might go into a concrete door knocking round, say you have a group of volunteers that say, uh, come up to you and say, hey, Robert, we'd like to join you on your next canvassing drive. Um, How would that day look like from beginning to end?
4: Well, we are always doing very short rounds. So we are not going, not always. I mean, if you have highly motivated people, you can go the entire day, the entire Saturday, for example. But if you have people that are new to this, it's important to also have some time to reflect on what's been happening uh, at the doors. So we might meet up at 4 p.m., then go to the doors at 4.30, then door knock for two hours, maybe until 6.30, and then get back together, reflect on what's been happening, count the numbers out. It's very important that you always have your numbers straight because without the numbers, it's like it didn't happen. So uh, do all that. And then you're good, and before the day, you might want to yeah plan where to go, think about for five minutes what you want to say at the door and what your goal is, and call everyone if they're still up to door knock and then you're good.
0: awesome um, obviously talking to people uh, can be pretty intimidating <laughs> um, How do you have a conversation at the door? What are some good guidelines for organizers looking to door knock for the first time.
4: I mean I like to remind people or ask people that want to door knock why are they in that organization that they're door knocking for in the first place? Because as leftists we are highly motivated to change the world and that's kind of the motivation uh, of folks in very different what you call it colors, you know? So why do you want to change the world and have that motivation with you and ask people, um, at the doors, what do they want? What are they, what are the problems in the neighborhood? What do you want to, what do you want to change? What do you want to stay the same and then have that conversation and guidelines are probably start with open questions. Don't start with questions. Are you happy? then they're going to say no or yes. And then it's very hard to have a conversation. Start with open questions like, what do you think should change? Or yeah, stuff like that. Um, I'm not well prepared on those questions right now. And then listen, listen, listen. You have to listen to your neighbors. Don't teach them. People don't like, like to be taught. That's very important. And also be honest. If they have questions like, ah, you're from Die Linke, can you tell me about uh, topic um, that topic? I've been reading about it in the newspaper and I'm very interested. And if I don't know what's going on in the local administration scene about uh, that one sign that's not being put up, then I'm going to tell my neighbors that I don't know, but I'm going to find out and I'm going to get back to them. And in the end, Everything people say is an argument for us because the things or the problems people encounter always lead to bigger problems. And as a socialist party, we have very good arguments or very good ideas how to change that. And the ideas are going to get even better if our neighbors work on those ideas or if we take ideas from our neighbors and then combine and build something new. So we're not trying to teach. We're trying to listen and we're trying to build a connection and then fight together.
0: Beautiful. Um, and just to end this little uh, tool uh, toolbox episode, um, what's a dream door knocking round you've had? And uh, have you ever had any kind of nightmare scenarios in which the conversation just didn't go well? Was it even a nightmare?
4: No, there has never been a nightmare, and that's the good news. It's always been maybe not a dream, but it's always been good. Our neighbors are nice, and they know what's wrong. You know, they have a good feeling about how they're being um, fucked over by the conservative government. So let's go out, knock on doors, and have nice conversations. And sometimes the numbers are better, sometimes they're not super good, but they're always in a range where I I would say it makes sense. And you always find out stuff that you have not known. And that's the nice thing. You find out stuff that is so interesting. And no matter if you're new to the neighborhood or if you've been living there for 30 years, you always find out stuff that is super interesting and that helps you um, in your day-to-day politics. And many politicians, like on a very on a district level, maybe, have uh, told us that that since they door knock, they know the neighborhood so well, and they are doing so much better work, and they're so much better prepared for the for conversations with uh, politicians from CDU or Green Party or whatever. So it makes a lot of sense. And if you're interested in door knocking, hit us up. We're going to leave the comment in the show notes, I guess. Right, Daniel? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. That was really beautiful. Thank you so much, Robert, for be coming onto the show. Uh, really appreciate your expertise and really looking forward to door knock with you in
4: a couple of weeks. Yeah, we're going to do it, right? Absolutely. 100%, baby. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Okay. Thank you very much, Daniel.
3: Typically, we think about leadership and movements and other areas of society in ways that are consistent with the conventional and dominant understanding of leadership, which tends to be patriarchal, top-down, and frequently charismatic. I like to focus on a different form of leadership, one that I think is essential for movements, and this I see as a kind of horizontal form of leadership, what, for lack of a better term, I sometimes call anti-authoritarian leadership, This is something that I see lots of organizers working to recover and to create right now. Many many people are looking to the experience and have been for quite some time looking to the experience of the US civil rights movement for help in doing this, particularly looking to the work of Ella Baker, the late organizer and movement elder who mentored younger organizers in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee known as SNCC. Baker argued for what she called group-centered leadership this is an understanding of leadership as a set of capacities and activities, including skills, knowledge, confidence, and responsibility. For Baker, the key was to develop and share this set of capacities and activities in order to deepen democracy and widen participation. Harsha Walia, a longtime organizer in Vancouver, sums this up very well in her book, Undoing Border Imperialism. She writes, quote, to me, the idea of anti-authoritarian politics isn't that there are no leaders, It is the idea that there is no arbitrary leadership and that leadership is shifting. Leadership is actually encouraged to the degree that you have group-centered leadership or collective leadership, or even individual leadership based on specific roles and responsibilities and experiences rather than on an arbitrary and stagnant leadership." I believe that developing healthy shared leadership in our groups and movements is a process. Here, I want to focus on what I think of as three essential parts of this process, what I call the three C's. Basically, what I want to propose is that we have to be clear, conscious, and collective about leadership. Let me go through these for a moment. Number one, being clear means identifying actually existing leadership roles and practices in our work. This means dispensing with the flawed ideas about no leaders or ideas that were somehow all the same and instead getting very specific, asking ourselves questions like, who spooks to the media? Who mediates internal conflict? Who maintains continuity between meetings? Who initiates new plans? Who provides childcare? As we answer these and similar questions, we can start getting to become more explicit about how things happen in our groups. In particular, we can discuss which Individuals take on what responsibilities and how this work is organized in visible and not-so-visible ways. The point is not to criticize people for doing certain things. Rather, we're trying to demystify leadership, to understand it as a set of essential activities and tasks that we can talk about openly. Now, the second C here is being conscious. Being conscious means designating leadership. Instead of defaulting to the usual ways that leadership is organized, things like experience, friendship, and social hierarchies, we can make intentional group decisions about who does what and why. This involves using democratic processes to delegate responsibilities to particular people or sets of people. With this kind of intentionality, we can set our own priorities around how responsibilities are organized. For instance, we might decide that we want to prioritize people who are not white men for highly visible leadership roles, such as talking to the media. Being conscious, I want to add here, also involves transforming how we act as leaders. Whether serving as an organizational representative or taking care of logistics for a protest, we should understand stepping into leadership role as assuming special obligations to others. This means we have to be accountable and transparent about what we say and do in our leadership capacities. The third C that I want to emphasize here is being collective. This means reorganizing responsibilities in our groups so that leadership is much more shared and dynamic. There are many ways to do this. Some responsibilities that are usually held by one or two people can be more widely distributed. For example, we can collectively discuss and determine strategic plans, media messaging, and logistical details, rather than leaving them to particular individuals. But even when it comes to the many responsibilities that can't be easily shared, there are more collective options. For instance, With clearly defined and designated leadership roles, we can use systems of rotation so that people take turns acting in certain roles. Some things that I know many groups commonly rotate are meeting facilitation and public speaking, but we can do this with all kinds of other leadership roles too, including coordinating outreach efforts, facilitating educational sessions, and checking in with people emotionally. There's another important dimension that I want to underline here. Being collective about leadership also means developing a collective process for creating leaders. Sometimes this is called leadership development, especially in the worlds of community organizing and labor organizing. The basic idea of leadership development is that if we're going to challenge the ways that leadership is so often organized, then we need to create structures for training and supporting people. Indeed, if we don't figure out intentional ways of training and supporting people, then rotating responsibilities will just set many people up for stress and failure. That's a dead end. The main thing I want to communicate about leadership development is that it has to involve at least three main things. First, skills building, which we can do through workshops and training programs of various kinds. Second, developing political analysis and knowledge, which we can do through political education, including consciousness raising groups, study groups, classes, and other means. And third, nurturing confidence through experience. This is something we can do through mentorship, including one-on-one mentorship, and collective support structures and groups that really hold people as they're moving into new experiences, taking on new responsibilities, and learning and evaluating their experiences. I think all of these pieces are crucial, skills building, developing political analysis and knowledge, and nurturing confidence through experience. But no single one of them is sufficient in terms of leadership development. We need them all together. If we can carry these things out, all of them, I think that's how we can build the movements that we need.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Spadework Podcast. An educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, the movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding, and effective political organizations. Please find a link to the Werkstatt in the description. This project is made possible by so many labors. We'd like to thank the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Roar Magazine for their comradely support.